Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling the dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Buxton, 1982. Derbyshire has, thankfully, very few murders that remain unsolved. 54-year-old father of one, Michael Pritchard, was killed while delivering parcels in the residential area of Kirk Langley. The youth involved deliberately drove his van into him before speeding away from the scene, never to be traced. Brian Adams was shot twice outside his home in Thorndike Avenue, Alverston, by a balaclava-clad gunman at 11.30 in the evening on August 14th, 1990. 48 at the time of his murder, he left behind three school-aged children. Their father's killer remains unknown. There are others too. Wendy Sewell in Bakewell, George Tyler in Clay Mills, Barbara Mayo, who was found in Woodland by Junction 28 of the M1. One in particular, however, given the advances in technology and possibly a different approach by the investigating officers, it feels as though a resolution could be found. That is the 1982 murder of 20-year-old Elaine Wakefield. Her body was discovered naked, except for a bra near a secluded country lane on the outskirts of Buxton. Despite cold case reviews and retesting of her clothing using modern forensic techniques, a killer is no nearer to be in court today than he was on the chilly February morning her body was found over 40 years ago. Elaine Wakefield had undergone some big changes in her life recently. Up until a fortnight previously, she'd been living with her mum and stepdad in the small village of Tunston Milton, six miles outside Buxton. Now, though, she was living with a boyfriend, married police officer Kenneth Sweet, sharing a flat on West Street in Buxton. Since leaving Chaplain Frith County Secondary School four years earlier, She'd flitted from job to job, but at the moment she was unemployed, recently giving up her shifts at two separate petrol stations, one in Buxton and the other in Chapel and Lafrith, just a five minutes drive away from her family home. Kenneth, her boyfriend and cohabitee, was 13 years her senior. A constable with Derbyshire Constabulary, he moved in with Elaine soon after splitting from his wife of eight years the mother of his young daughter and still resident in the family home in Chapel Lefrith. Beyond work and romance, Elaine's enjoyed a hobby that two modern audiences had sound as anachronistic as cave painting and dodo spotting. She was a CB radio enthusiast. If you were born post the DVD players first becoming available in the UK, 1997 before you ask, I'm willing to wager that you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. CB, Citizens Band Radio, is a mode of shortwave radio communication 
Up until a year before Elaine's death, it was a clandestine and illegal activity, whereby, with the aid of a relatively cheap bit of kit, users would tune into one of 40 shortwave radio frequencies. They'd then introduce themselves and chat with those they came into contact with. Friendships would be made, gossip exchanged, and fun was had by all. Prior to the legislation to bring CB radios into the mainstream, some of the frequencies were used for legally sanctioned purposes, such as emergency responders, business communications or transport services. Legislation, though, brought the hobby out of the shadows and for the Christmas of 1981, just months before Elaine's murder, small CB radios were the must-have gift from Santa. Like some online communication today, CB radio communication enjoyed a degree of anonymity. Each user gave themselves a handle by which they were known, and granted, given the cheapest radios that only cover a distance of a couple of miles, there was every chance that he could be speaking to the chap from the butchers. But the idea was that though the communication was open to anyone with a set to listen to, the fact that nobody used their real names added a layer of reassurance that whatever she said couldn't be traced to the individual. There was also the use of a coded language. Hams, as CB radio enthusiasts call themselves, used a form of slang when talking. What's your 20, for example, was a request to know another's location. Towns and villages were given the individual CB call signs. Buxton, for instance, was known as Spartown, in recognition of its supposed heaving waters. The Derbyshire village of Eam was Plague Town, a nod to the heroism and self-sacrifice of its inhabitants during the bubonic plague of 1665. Elaine was described variously as fun-loving, impulsive and confident. It's possible, with these characteristics in mind, that the young gas jockey, CB slang for petrol pump attendant, chose the handle or nickname for herself, Ever Ready. Bernard Gleave was one of those people you could rely on to get things done. In his late 40s, he was not only a town councillor for the nearby Cheshire seat of Macclesfield, but he was also the director of the British Motorcycle Association. Both positions were voluntary in nature, and as such, what spare time he had outside of his job was generously spent on his two passions, public service and motorbikes. As chairman of the East Cheshire Motocross Club, it was for that reason, on a cold Sunday morning at the end of February, he and three other committee members were at the High Edge Raceway, a couple of miles south of Buxton. Sunday would be the 1982 Winter Scramble, and with 350 or so competitors registered, there was plenty that needed doing for what, for the quartet, was the biggest home race of the season. At the centre of this site was a well-worn tarmac racetrack. Surrounding the track, on each side, were low grass embankments, 
on which spectators would perch or stand to watch the races, which started and finished at the old racetrack control building, a small corrugated steel building, which is still there today, a nod to the track's heritage. Between the track and the embankments was a seven-foot-high safety fence, and it was on the track side of the fence, at a section almost adjacent to the A6, that the four men made a tragic discovery. The near-naked body of Elaine Wakefield. Calling from the phone at the racetrack control building, officers were at the scene within ten minutes, and from there, under the leadership of Detective Superintendent Tony Naylor, the investigation began. Within the first 24 hours, a picture of the final day of Elaine's life emerged. She'd spent the morning and early afternoon at home with Ken, her boyfriend. It appeared that the two continued on with an argument that had started the previous evening, resulting in the decision that they should bring their relationship to an end with Ken returning to his wife and child. In order to give him space to pack his things, Elaine said she'd leave him alone in the flat, and sometime between 2 and 2.30 in the afternoon, she left one west road, never to return. It seemed, however, that her absence in herself from home wasn't simply about accommodating Ken's departure. Over the course of the following two hours, she was sighted at various times, walking purposefully in the direction of High Edge Raceway. Nine individuals came forward to say they'd seen the blonde-haired five-foot-two Elaine en route to the secluded racetrack, the times and locations supporting the thought that she made either all or the majority of the journey on foot. Post-mortem examinations assigned the cause of death as asphyxia, an artery in her neck being forced closed and causing a fatal denial of oxygen to the brain. It was also noted that there were no meaningful defence wounds on Elaine's body or any signs of a general struggle at the scene. It appears that armed with this information, a hypothesis set in the minds of detectives that would colour the entire investigation. As the site at which Elaine's body was discovered was known locally as a lover's lane, and as it was being suggested that Elaine hadn't fought with whoever was responsible for her death, the assumption was not only made, but also publicly professed, that Elaine's death was the result of, and I'm going to use the very words that Detective Superintendent Naylor here, a sex game gone wrong. It was proffered that Elaine had arranged to meet someone at or near where she was discovered, and in the heat of passion, she was killed, her partner panicking and fleeing the scene. A BBC survey in 2019 discovered that one in three women in the UK under 40 had experienced unwanted sexual violence during consensual sex. Actions such as choking, slapping, hair pulling and spitting were described with 42% of those who'd experienced such behaviour, described and characterised their participation as coerced or forced. 
I'm in no way trying to kink shame anyone. 14% of women surveyed said that although they hadn't given prior consent, they welcomed it. In fact, the BDSM, bondage, domination, sadomasochism community are among some of the strongest advocates for consent and particularly informed consent. They understand better than most the vulnerable position an individual puts themselves in while consenting and campaigns for a much better understanding and universal acceptance. Back to my main point though. The reason I bring up this survey is to highlight the language the police used when discussing Elaine's murder with the public. In almost every communication through the media, for reasons known only to themselves, the detectives proffered the hypothesis that Elaine had died as a result of rough sex gone wrong, that her killer had put his hands around her throat in the throes of passion and, accidentally, choked her to death. It's probably worth, at this point, adding a little biology to the proceedings. Elaine died because of pressure placed on her throat, specifically her carotid artery. After 10 seconds of pressure on the carotid artery, a healthy adult will lose consciousness. If pressure is released, the individual will regain consciousness almost immediately and suffer no long-term complications with their health. It's established that in order for a person to die of asphyxia, the pressure would need to be maintained for between four to five minutes. This was the scenario in which the police were suggesting she'd been murdered. During a tryst on Lover's Lane, her sexual partner had held her by the throat for four to five minutes before realising she was dead and then, in shock, had fled the scene. Detective Superintendent Naylor Leading the inquiry, even used the phrase that she wasn't savagely sexually assaulted to underline the almost accidental nature of a murder. And I use the term murder reservedly. In the eyes of the law even today, despite legislation to deny those accused of inflicting serious injury or killing a partner during sex, the defence of rough sex gone wrong in nearly half the cases a murder charge is brought is reduced to manslaughter, sentencing sitting mostly between three to five years. And this is 2023. In the early 80s, the police seemed content with the idea that because Elaine's body hadn't been brutalised and desecrated, it couldn't have been a willful act of murder. The reality, reading the newspapers of the day, is that the police simply didn't have any idea who killed Elaine. Vague appeals were made to men seen in or around the area close to the time of her death. We'd encourage them to come forward. They may have valuable information. We want to rule them out of our inquiry. Motorists along the A6 south of Buxton reported seeing a man running from the scene of Elaine's murder on the very same afternoon. Possibly dressed in red, he never came forward. It was thought that his identity didn't seem to be much of a priority to the investigation. Speaking to the media, it was suggested that he was just a jogger. A fingertip search of the surrounding area yielded nothing of evidential value. The only notable find was four unexploded World War II bombs, which had laid just below the surface of the farmer's field, 
a few hundred yards from the spot where Elaine's body was found. In an attempt to garner some media interest and hopefully jog a few memories, a reconstruction of Elaine's final journey was staged, with a female police officer assuming the role of the blonde-haired 20-year-old and of whose death little was actually known. Over a thousand inquiries and 700-plus statements brought with them little or no progress to the investigation, and by the summer of 1993, the inquiry was wound down. The thumbnail sketch the detective developed was that Elaine had left her flat in the mid-afternoon on the 27th of February 1982 and walked to the racetrack for a pre-arranged meeting with an unknown man. As she lived her life within a fairly small geographical area, they seemed confident that a killer was local, someone with whom she'd consented to sex but had accidentally killed her. Even a CB hobby didn't allow for a wide search of suspects. The relatively small radius within which she was able to operate meant that the focus was still on someone from either Buxton or one of the small surrounding villages. I know what you're thinking. In most police investigations into murder or an act of violence against a woman, the first people that the investigation will look to are those closest to them. In Elaine's case, all eyes fell on her partner and boyfriend, Ken. Now, although specific details were never released to the public, her partner Ken was ruled out as a suspect. In the aftermath of Elaine's killing, he was suspended by Derbyshire Police for, to quote Detective Superintendent Naylor, his own god. He's too close to the case. Incidentally, within days of Elaine's murder, he moved back in with his wife and eight-year-old daughter picking up the life he'd left to start anew with Elaine. I say this only as a statement of fact. You know, should anyone be concerned as to how he dealt with the murder of the young girl whom he left his wife for and hoped, apparently, to start a new life together. I'm stood by the crossroads on London Road, the main road into Buxton from the south of the town. We're a five five minute walk from the pavilion, the pavilion gardens, the opera house and the, the recently refurbished Crescent. And that grand architecture of the Georgian bit of the town dates back to a time when the ladies and the infirm of the industrial north would flee to take the waters at the spa town of Buxton and enjoy the restorative qualities of the, the clean air up here in the hills. The bit of town I'm in at the moment though is 
a little less elegant. The buildings are on a more humane scale, I suppose you could say. They're no more than one or two stories. The majority are red brick or weather-worn and ashened limestone. There's shops on most of the ground floors and upstairs they have properties, flats to rent. There's shops and takeaways, cafes. There's a this being Buxton, there's someone selling caving gear. Um, if you carry on into the centre of town along London Road past the Crescent and the Opera House and out the other side towards Manchester you'd find yourself near the village of Tunstead Milton which is where Elaine's parents lives, lived and um, the home in Chaplin Le Frith that she grew up in with her mum and a stepdad. Here though, at the crossroads on London Road, there's uh, the London Road pub. A place that I think it's safe to say has probably seen better days. If you come out from the pub and turn right, a few doors down is Elaine's flat that she lived in briefly with Ken. I'm not sure whether it is now, but at the time it was a house broken up into small bedsits or flats and now it's got a quite a jolly puce colour front door and it's out of that door that Elaine walked at half two on the that February afternoon afternoon in 1982 never to return she'd have come out and turned right walking away from the pub and the crossroads in the direction of the racetrack um, it's quite a grey day the sky is very heavy and it's raining and Although it wasn't raining when Elaine took that fateful walk, the weather was certainly cold and Buxton's up in the hills. So a combination of cold is always met by winds and it is windy and cold right now. Okay, so I've made an executive decision. Uh, the rain's got worse. And so while I'm willing to put hours and hours into researching and recording and editing and on vacation visits, I'm certainly not going to traipse for the whole afternoon in the pouring rain 
to create some audio that, well, it's going to just be infected by wind and rain interference, probably rendering it unlistenable. So I bottled it and we're going to drive to the next spot on this journey, which will be to where Elaine's body was found, just five or so miles outside of Buxton. As you drive away from Elaine's front door, the houses start to become a bit more substantial. They're um, neater and better maintained, I think. And away from the traffic and general busyness of London Road, the grey limestone brickwork is cleaner. They're smart little front gardens um, and it's got a bit more of a tranquil feel to it we're at the edge of Buxton now and the houses give way to well, beautiful views out across the countryside. You go from valleys with steep slopes running above you to elevated routeways that give near, it's kind of like a 360 degree view out over the peaks and beyond. The journey would have been one which felt more isolated and alone than I think I appreciated and it emphasises the fact that this isn't a journey that Elaine would have taken on spec rather it would have been one that had been pre-arranged I guess the question is though why would someone be meeting someone out here it is so remote here you know, it had been some sort of some sort of clandestine arrangement. Someone with something to lose if if they'd been seen together. So after driving down what was, well it's a single track road, 
um i think you can i think in the day it probably would have been no more than really a dirt track i've got to the spot along this road anyway which is as close to where elaine's body was found as i as i could so i'm gonna hop out in a minute and take a stroll just down towards the fence line and try and see if i can find the exact spot where it's thought she died um, and it stopped raining I'm from what I've worked out from the photographs of the site I think this is pretty much where body was found um, and despite a murder taking place years ago I really don't think very much has changed the fence is still here a little rusty and not very secure there's grey concrete posts dotted every 10-15 metres or so and there's a long thin wire that's got rusty mesh hanging off it it's not it certainly wouldn't prevent anyone from going inside but at the same time I don't think there's very much to tempt anyone beyond it there's the track and a couple of outbuildings. You know, unless it was just general curiosity or a, an enthusiasm for graffiti, I don't really think there's much to tempt the teams in that direction. You might be able to hear in the distance, there's, I think it's quarrying going on. I can't really place it, but I can see for miles around, it's just a wide expanse of shrubland with peaks in the distance the shrublands just left to grow wild and I think the only thing that keeps it in line is the fact that the wind whipping along here keeps it under control there's a couple of rolls of barbed wire some grey concrete blocks bits of old industrial waste that's just been dumped here it's a it's a pretty bleak spot there'd be no one to overlook you here no one to see what if anything you're up to so it's a very private place I think when I say that it's private, what I really mean is it's secluded and isolated. 
and given how dark it would have been it would have got dark at about half four at the time of year that Elaine was here and you know by five it would have been pitch black it just feels a very bleak and because almost hopeless place and I'm kind of touched by the fact that Elaine's case remains unsolved and the hopelessness and the bleakness of this spot where she was sexually assaulted and murdered leaves sense that it's just as bleak and hopeless as the prospects so long into the future as we are now of of finding the culprit yeah it's quite a um, places have an atmosphere and this does have an atmosphere of hopelessness At the inquest into Elaine's death, the dissonance between how a murder was being treated and the reality of a life lost was laid bare. High Peak Coroner Clive Rushton recorded an open verdict. This meant the opinion of the inquest was that while Elaine's death was suspicious, the jury were unable to reach a firm conclusion as to the cause. In itself, this isn't unusual. However, the narrative conclusion came as something of a shock. Coroner Rushton said that Elaine had died during what he described as some sort of horseplay or a vigorous embrace with a man she'd met after walking out on her boyfriend. Despite the grotesquely misogynistic characterisation of Elaine and her life, the fact that he described her as walking out on her boyfriend was factually inaccurate. Elaine didn't walk out on her boyfriend. Her and Ken had decided to split, with him returning, no one knows with what enthusiasm, to his previous life with his wife and young daughter. It's common knowledge, almost as close to being established fact, that the point at which a female partner is in most danger of experiencing violence is at the end of the relationship. I offer that with no prejudice, just a simple statement of fact. A statement of fact that was not considered at the coroner's inquiry. It was the picture painted of Elaine, though, that caused most hurt. The disgust and despair of her family were clear. During Coroner Rushton's final words, they erupted into howls of indignation and anger. Her stepfather, admonishing the coroner for misleading the jury, and decrying the characterisation of a murder as mere horseplay. Both he and Elaine's mother were subsequently, and somewhat insensitively, ejected from the inquest. Nevertheless, speaking to the media afterwards, her stepfather affirmed his commitment to find the killer of Elaine.
I'm convinced, he said, that she was killed by a local man, and I will go on searching for him forever. While with the podcast, I make every effort not to let my own opinions cloud the telling of the story. For instance, I wouldn't suggest in the case of Elaine that there's one suspect who, well, I don't know, stands out above the rest. I hope you'll indulge me a moment's editorialising. If you're listening to this, you probably consume more than is possibly healthy of true crime content. Podcasts books, websites, TV documentaries. Here's a secret. So do I. In all true crime content, however, there are certain recurring statements that irritate me beyond belief. One in particular is when a narrator or on-screen supposed expert is discussing a historic crime and in order to contextualise the investigative opportunities open to detectives, explain that the crime took place before mobile phones, before CCTV, before DNA. Mobile phones, I'll accept. They're an invention. Perfectly legitimate point. CCTV? Well... It's been in existence for a long time and I'll accept that it's certainly more prevalent in the UK than it was even 10 years ago. What I won't accept, however, is the assertion that DNA didn't exist. It's the genetic code that's embedded in the cells of every living organism on the planet. It defines every characteristic and inherited function of the body. It's been with us and everything else that's ever lived since the dawn of time. Have these people not seen Jurassic Park? It's literally the entire plot of the film, book, fairground rind or lunchbox from the 1900s and George Mendel fiddling around with peas or Watson and Crick trying to define its structure in 1952, scientists have sought to discover and define it. University of Leicester professor Andy Jacobs didn't invent DNA in the 80s. He developed a way for the unique genetic fingerprint of an individual to be used in a murder investigation, and as such made it possible for DNA to become an investigative tool for law enforcement around the globe. It is therefore incorrect to say that a crime took place before DNA. It may have taken place before advances in genetic technology made it possible to identify and isolate an individual's DNA profile from a crime scene exhibit and compare it with a sample collected from a suspect. So, if you're listening, you lovely, lovely people, the Sky Crime or the Crime Investigation Channel or Netflix or the first 48 hours or wherever, please, for the sanity of a rather pedantic middle-class White bloke from the UK, just try harder.
So, why did I prattle on about that? Well, in the years since Elaine's murder, on several occasions, Derbyshire police have revisited the case, applying developing forensic technologies to her jeans, top, anorak and underwear. Elaine's murder took place, and listen up, this is what you should have said, before modern advances in genetic sequencing, and as such, subsequent cold case reviews have taken advantage of that. In 2003, Detective Superintendent Malcolm Parkin commissioned retesting of all relevant exhibits and a partial DNA profile was identified. Samples of blood, skin, hair and even semen that had previously been missed were discovered, but unfortunately, a review of all relevant suspects failed to provide a sample that sufficiently matched that found on Elaine's clothing. And despite what were described as several interesting cause, the case again failed to find a conclusion. And that, I'm afraid, is where the status of Elaine's murder remains today. Derbyshire police give the familiar line when asked about the case, that no unsolved case is ever closed, and that periodically reviews take place to assess whether any further lines of inquiry can be pursued. This is the first unsolved case I've covered on the podcast. And to say that I'm frustrated and dismayed that nobody's been brought to justice for her murder is an understatement. Just as frustrating, though, is the seeming blinkered approach that the investigation took. The idea that Elaine's murder, though tragic in the eyes of detectives, was as a consequence of not a concerted act of violence but just a mistake, is sickening. Whether 20 years on, technology has progressed to the extent that a fuller, more useful profile could be gained by retesting the exhibits, I don't know. I find hardly believe that it hasn't. Just two years after the last review of Elaine's case, there were 3.1 million individuals in the UK National DNA Database. The most recent data available says that in the year 2020, this number had doubled. This increased availability of samples, plus the developing field of familial DNA profiling, surely must offer some hope that one day her killer will be brought to justice. Right now, I'm stood at the edge of um, the relatively busy main road in Chapel on the Frith. Um, it's a small Peak District town. I think it's about eight or nine thousand population, um, and it's here that Elaine grew up. Uh, as I just step in from the road there's a church in front of me 
um, and it's just kind of a story and a half high with broad limestone rough brickwork which is kind of typical around here um, and it's here on the 20th of March in 1982 that Elaine's funeral took place. The service was led by the local priest, the Reverend Kenneth Savage, who described Elaine as boisterous and with a love for life. Among the congregation of about, I think it was over a hundred, was a family and friends and a large group of fellow CB radio enthusiasts. There was um, an arrangement of flowers carrying the card bidding farewell to Easy Rider which is the handle that she'd used over the airways. There were, um, there were another distinct group of people in attendance. A group of people who'd never met Elaine. The detectives that were investigating her murder. Led by Detective Superintendent Naylor. While wanting to show their respects to Elaine. They were also there to see if anyone who attended the funeral gave them any reason for them to to consider them a suspect. Um, the church is closed up now, but I can just see through a little crack in the curtains that it's uh, inside it's quite a pretty little chapel. And it would have been fit to burst in with the number of mourners that turned out. I'm just working my way around the side of the church now because just around to the rear there's a small and well, a well-kept graveyard. Um, mainly laid out to grass and there's a, a path running right along the middle separating on either side two or three rows of, of gravestones um, I think like most graveyards the stones fall into two categories really there's the old weathered some precariously leaning, others took a slight tumble um, in kind of grey granity stone. Um, those ones tend to kind of date kind of late 19th century. And then there's more contemporary ones which are, tend to be in black, highly polished marble. Um, they're the newer ones, the black polished ones, tend to be the ones that get flowers still left at them, um, be it fresh flowers or um, 
kind of synthetic bouquets of silk flowers or plastic flowers but they tend to be the ones that the more attention is paid to I've, um, I've got back to the church and the patch of graves on the right hand side about halfway down set the row back is one of the newer graves and it stands out from from most of the others and it's not really because it's one of the graves that's got more flowers on it or I made just before Christmas and it's got a couple of festive wreaths on it there's a little wicker reindeer um, and a fern arrangement that's in the shape of a Christmas tree it's simply that right beside it there's a a simple wooden cross with the first name of a, a woman carved on it and that name's Elaine the wooden cross is weathered but you know it was obviously made to last because 40 years ago when it was used to mark her final resting place it's still in pretty good nick it's a bit water stained but the carving on it of Elaine's name still stands out with the black paint I presume that was inlaid to give her name some prominence on it and it's here that the hundred or so mourners gathered round a coffin as it was lowered into the ground the cross stood proud and, and dignified now it sits adjacent and attached to uh, a more traditional polished black headstone the engraved lettering illuminated really in gold leaf it's, it marks the passing of two women uh, Elaine and a grandmother and it reads cherished memories of Emma Winifred Wakefield devoted mother and nana born 12th of February 1905 died peacefully 14th of September 1989 also Elaine Irene Wakefield beloved daughter of Anne born 23rd of December 1961 died 25th of February 1982 there's two things that strike me on reading this headstone immediately um, the first is that today is the 22nd of December so tomorrow would have been Elaine's um, 62nd birthday um, and I wonder whether any of Elaine's family will be visiting tomorrow to lay fresh flowers to mark the day um, it's I actually, actually brought a small bouquet to lay myself but given that tomorrow is such a significant day I'm probably not going to leave it because given the circumstances around Elaine's 
death um i think a bunch of small flowers from a random stranger popping up on her grave to mark her birthday might i don't really want to make them feel awkward or anything like that um so I'll, I'll, there's a memorial to servicemen and women who lost their lives in conflict so I'll, I'll probably pop them on there the second thing that stands out is the wording on the stone Emma her nana it says died peacefully and uh, if you look around it's a word you often see on gravestones or memorials such and such died peacefully next to Elaine's name it simply reads died 25th of February 1982 Elaine didn't die peacefully she was sexually assaulted and callously murdered her body left out in the wilds of the Peak District um, when Anana died and was buried here seven years after Elaine's murder she'd have gone to a grave never seen justice for the murder of her granddaughter I wouldn't have thought that 41 years later from a murder the family and friends that gathered around the grave that day would have believed that here we are today and Elaine's murderer has still still never been brought to justice.